0: Good afternoon. Good to see you all. Um, I really enjoyed uh, Pastor Kevin's message last week and how he was kind of talking about our series right now called The Way Forward. So this week we're going to jump into The Way Forward Part 2, and the title is Cloud of Witnesses. So pray with me as we get started, and then we'll dive on in. Jesus, thank you so much for space and time to worship you in song and dance and in the study of your word. Jesus, we pray that through our fellowship with one another and our fellowship with you today, we would be drawn closer to one another and closer to you, and that we'd be encouraged and drawn to the way um, that you have taught us and continue to teach us through your word. Jesus, we pray that that our hearts would be turned towards you, mine as well, and that we would continue to experience you in real ways um, today and throughout the rest of this week. Be with us now as we study. In your name. Amen. All right. Last week, Pastor Kevin talked about a swing. He talked about how the way forward is often about also kicking backwards, right? And that there's this constant sort of need to push forward, but a need also to remember where we've come from. And he said that everyone, every human being on the face of thirst needs a story, a community, and a purpose, and that the way of Jesus meets every one of these needs. Kevin also talked about how at Spark we ask a lot of questions. We do a lot of wrestling. We permit all of those questions to be asked without anyone being voted off the island. I don't know if you ever had the survivor experience. All the talk of immunity this week, by the way, I was like, is this survivor? What's happening? Um, so, all of that, right? Like, is there a place or a um, way in which, as we ask questions about how we do this, and maybe as we respond, Or find ourselves reacting to how other people are also using the name of Jesus. And we're like, but that's not as much the way that I have understood Jesus' teachings. And we react to that. We find ourselves um, what's now being called in this current, you know, place of Christianity in North America. Particularly um, deconstructing our faith. Um, Has anybody here found yourself sort of being, okay, this this thing, right? I have to start. Yeah. Like small little hands going up. Great. I, what the way I did it before is not the way that I presently am comfortable doing it. And I don't know if this is a helpful analogy for you, but the way that I've looked at it is like, those are clothes that I have in my closet. I still like those clothes, but I don't wear them anymore. Does that make sense? So it's not that I'm disdaining them. I'm not embarrassed that I wore the bell bottoms in the 70s or pegged my jeans in the 80s. That was what I did for that season and that time, and it was right. But now I don't peg my acid wash jeans. I don't actually have acid wash jeans anymore, and I don't wear a lot of dayglow. I did grow up in the 70s and the 80s. Um, so one time, when we start to do that deconstructing of our faith, sometimes the room that we previously lived in looked quite glamorous, and now it looks like this. Um, It's dirty. It's in disrepair. Because some of us, in almost a rage, have gone into our experience of North American Christendom, whatever your experience may be. Some people might be reacting to the fact that they grew up in a liturgical setting. And so they react to that and they pull it all out rip it all out by its roots, and then they go straight to more of a free-flowing evangelical or non-denominational setting. Some people grow up in a non-denominational, more evangelical, free-flowing setting, and they react to that by pulling it all out and running to a liturgical setting. Um, I have friends that I've studied with in the Middle East, and they've left sort of a um, typical American Baptist experience. They go to the Middle East and study, and they come back Eastern Orthodox. You can say, well, wow, that's a big switch. How did that happen? But it's because what they've studied has caused them to feel more deeply connected to the Middle Eastern expression of Christianity. And so they find themselves drawn to an Eastern Orthodox expression. Now, that can sound all crazy to some of us, but I, I think it makes sense. And I think sometimes we do that when we're in college. Sometimes when we do, it in, we do it in high school. Oftentimes when we think about those different frames of our life. In junior high, we're asking the question of the youth pastor, like, um, do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? I'm in the coolest. And then high school, we're like, do I like you? I don't know if I like you. Right. And then in college, we're like, do I like what you say? Like, do I like what you stand for? And we get really, you know, radical. And I had Birkenstocks in high school and stage sit out. So I get it. Like, I'd save the planet t-shirt um, and was all, and was a card carrying Republican. Um, I don't wear Birkenstocks today, nor do I have that card any longer. So all of those things, right, have shifted and changed in my life. And yet, I don't want my room, my home, the heart where Christ lives to look like this. I don't want it to look just torn up. So we start to move back into that house. And this is what spark does, right? Like we start to walk into the house and maybe we've never lived in the house before. And so it just starts like this. And that's great too. Like, Hey, I'm interested in the way of Jesus. And it's a bit of a blank canvas. And we get to walk in and we start to do construction then, right? We want to not just deconstruct everything, but now we want to start moving some furniture back in. Staying here is just sad. It's not a room anyone feels comfortable in. They don't want to raise kids in that room. They don't want to, do you guys resonating with this picture kind of a little bit? And here is better, but also kind of sad, right? No place to sit, no place around a table, no place to invite people in. um, And still a lot of questions that I see here. So I'm going to hope that today and in this series, as we continue to talk about the way forward, that we start to move some furniture in whatever your style is you can think about all of your favorite styles simple or you know fancy whatever it is we're going to start to move some in and part of the way we're going to do that is we're going to ask the question well what is our story if it is a story and a community and a purpose that all human beings need and that the way of Jesus provides us with all those things well what is the story now i find that many of us regardless of our tradition our faith tradition our family background our national background, wherever we've lived, we tend to do romantic things to stories. Um, this, to me, is an appalling story. I just want to let you know. My daughter is not allowed to watch this movie. I'm not into Stockholm Syndrome. And I don't think that just be, we should just be nice to him because he had like this bad, right? This man has abused her <laughs> and has locked her in a prison, and now she's come to like him. I have problems with the whole story. So I'm not into this story, right? But what we do when we see these moments is we romanticize it. And like, well, he is a beast, but he does comb his hair, right? So all of those things, I mean, there was that really cool candelabra and teapot. And we romanticize the stories. Now, we do the same thing with extremism and romanticism when we look at our Bible. Many of us, the reason why we're in a place of asking questions now of our text is because maybe we've just finally started reading it. And as you started to read it, somebody's like, hey, you should read your Bible. And we're like, okay, I'll read my Bible. And then you sat down and you started. and you're like, Genesis, that's cool. It's a little weird times, like Lot, daughter, something else. But then you get to access to Leviticus. And now, and now you're like, okay, I have some significant questions. Why does God permit slavery? Uh, what's going on with the test for the unfaithful wife? Uh, you know, we have some real questions. And yet, so many of us have looked at our faith experience And we just look in these extremes and we either romanticize it or we tear it apart. So I'm going to suggest that as we look at our story, romanticism and broad strokes do not belong in historic academic pursuits. And that means whether you're critical or celebratory of the current place and faith and expression of the majority faith that gets promoted through, let's say, media any broad strokes or romantic strokes aren't helpful. Not all Christians do this. Not all Republicans do this. Not all Democrats do this. Not all X, Y, and Z do any of those things. And so as we go and we start to look at our story, I'm going to suggest that nuances and grays and acceptance of complicated humanity must accompany a rejection of naivete or Debbie Downerism, pessimism, or starry-eyed optimism right? We need some realism in this place, and we need to try to not gravitate towards any of our tendencies. And probably every single one of us in this room could say, I'm the Debbie Downer, Or, I'm the starry-eyed optimist. I don't want you to tell me one bad thing about the person that I'm dating. Everything's great, right? So all of those things, as we go through, we all have those ways of thinking and working. And my favorite thing at the end of leading a two-week tour in Israel is that when you ask people, how do you know you went on a two-week tour with me? Regularly, they will say, every site you say, it's complicated. Like, yes, now you can graduate. (laughs) Um, If you walk into a complicated land, like ancient Israel or modern Israel, and you walk away going, yeah, I totally got that, then you have not learned, right? You need to go back again. It's complicated. And so is our Bible. But we also tend to read our text from whatever point of view we're trying to prove. I want to prove that it's misogynistic and full of an angry, wrathful God. I'm going to find every story to support that. I'm going to prove that it's full of grace and love and mercy, and I'm going to find every story to support that. Well, I'm just going to let you know right now, I have chosen the love goggles, and the reason why is because of the cross. Because of John three sixteen painted on all sorts of signs at sporting events across America. For God so loved the world that God gave God's only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that verse and my experience with the resurrected person of Jesus Christ continues to cause me to read my Bible through that lens of the resurrection. So I'm just letting you know right now that's the way that I read that Bible. And you can read it a different way. That's okay but that's how I'm going to approach it. So as I then go through, I start to read stories like in Exodus where I go, wow, or Genesis, even at the very beginning, that's an interesting way to talk about the creation of the world. But isn't it fascinating that in my book, I have a story where women are created as equals along men, and they are both created in the image of God. That is a unique story. That is not found in other ancient Near Eastern narratives where female is created and created in the image of God alongside male and created good. That's an interesting story that shapes how I view my world. It starts out in that garden, that peace, the shalom and the kingdom of God where things are set to right. And when I read the Moses story, I read of a woman, a mother, Yochaved, with courage who knows how to hide her son and place her son in such a spot that Pharaoh's daughter, the king's daughter, the king who has ruled genocide on the Hebrew people, on the Hebrew baby boys, read Hitler. Hitler's daughter finds the Hebrew baby and rescues him. And she has that story. And Shifra and Pua, whose names we know, and we do not know the name of the king, His name's not Pharaoh. That's a title. Just we're clear. Yeah, we don't. We aren't given that. And we know his sister hides and waits and with courage goes Miriam goes and that his wife then Zipporah will save his life. And so, yes, you and I, we can read that Moses story, but we best also read it through the light of all of the women that stepped in and made it so that Moses could even live to be the one that could bring God's people out of Egypt. And so I read a story of God who looks down and remembers, thinks upon and acts, is the connotation of that word in Hebrew, looks down and remembers and says, oh, these people I've made a promise to, I will be faithful to that promise. I've heard them cry out, slavery is not okay. I will pull them out and I will rescue them and deliver them. I read my Bible and I find those verses of anchors and security like, do justice, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. All of those verses in the Bible about justice and care for the widow and the orphan and the poor. And how God rails against Israel's leadership when Israel ignores the needs of those most vulnerable and marginalized in their midst. To the point even when we get to Jeremiah chapter 23, it's 34, excuse me, Jeremiah 34. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty. God commands all of Israel, all of Jerusalem, Judea, says, let all of the people go. Let the slaves go. Everybody needs to be set free. Liberty. Freedom for all. And God's people don't do it. So then God declares later on in that chapter, then I'll do freedom for you. I'll give you freedom from freedom. I'm going to take you now out of Jerusalem and take you to Babylon. And they get exiled. Because God is so deeply concerned and serious about how God's people will behave towards the poor, towards the marginalized, towards those that are hurting. Where is my story coming from? It's coming from these deep passages and stories that continue to move through. Even prior to the time of Jesus, prior to the time of the first century... Philo notes that the Essenes, who were more um, aesthetic and extreme in their expression of Judaism and living out by the Salt Sea, by the Dead Sea, the Essenes, Philo says this, they do not use the ministrations of slaves looking upon the possession of servants or slaves to be a thing absolutely and wholly contrary to nature, for nature hath created all men free. So I know that in my Judeo-Christian background up until even the point of Jesus, that the practice of Judaism, I want to read the stories of the people that said no to slavery. So yeah, I can read my text and I can go, how come it's permitted that we have slaves? But then I can also read texts that say, oh, they were doing away with that and they were working towards it. Now, does that mean everybody? No, but some. And this is going to become deeply important because the gospel is going to go then into that Greco-Roman world of which when this is written, it is a Greece-run world with all of Hellenism and all of that mindset where it's perfectly fine for you to own a human being, for you to disparage women and children and the marginalized. And yet this group of sectarian Jews out by the Salt Sea are saying, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. Slavery is not okay. And this leads us right in and right prior to and into the time of the way of Jesus. Whereas we watch Jesus walk around in Jesus's life and in his world, he starts to pull all of those people in close to him who've been marginalized and harmed by the systems of the day, by that Hellenism that is swept through, by all of those institutions, the Greco-Roman world, all of that that's come through. He starts to say, yeah, Mary, you've chosen the better part. Martha, Don't worry. I'm the resurrection and the life. Your brother will live again. This is the way you're to serve one another, to wash one another's feet. I've laid down my life for you. And people started to find him and follow. And to the widow and to the orphan and to the poor and to the hurt and those with leprosy and blind and deaf, Jesus reaches out and brings everyone close to the table to the prostitute, to the tax collector, to the sinner, to all of them, Jesus says, you in me have a radical welcome. You are a child of God and you belong at this table. And in this moment, then, he starts to give us some crazy teachings. What is our story? Here's a grounding part of our story. He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, that's not in your Bible. It was said by some other groups, contemporary of Jesus' day, particularly the Essenes. (laughs) It's not an interesting thing. But I tell you, love your enemies, Jesus says, and pray for those who persecute you, that you might be children of your Father in heaven, because he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what grounds Jesus and the followers of Jesus is love of God, love of neighbor, and unique to the teachings of Jesus, love of enemy. Years ago, Professor David Flusser of Blessed Memory in Jerusalem, an Orthodox Jewish scholar who studied the synoptic Gospels of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, was asked what made Jesus unique as a rabbi in his teachings, and he referenced this passage, that love of enemy was unique to the teachings of Jesus. And so somebody raised their hand and they said, are you saying that that's what makes Christianity unique? And he said, oh, I haven't seen a lot of Christians doing this, but this is what Jesus has taught. And because he is in that rabbinic discipleship context, the idea is that if Jesus is who you and I claim him to be, if he is our God, our Messiah, our rabbi, then we follow him and we do what he says. And Jesus says that the sun and the rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's actually quite beautiful later on in the Talmud, in the Babylonian Talmud, And probably from the rabbi written about 400 years after the time of Jesus, they wrote this, greater is the day of rain than the day of the resurrection of the dead. Because the resurrection of the dead benefits only the righteous, but rain benefits both the righteous and the unrighteous. That we're so thrilled when God blesses even our enemies, even those unrighteous. This is a core central teaching to our Judeo-Christian ethic. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. These words uttered on the cross, these are the words of Christianity, of our Jesus, our Messiah. And these words, forgiveness, laying down your life, choosing suffering, all of this is part of our core story. So when I want to ask the question, what is our story and how does that ground me into my faith? I want to read those passages and texts. And as we look then at that central pivotal moment of the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection... We are reminded that the resurrection itself demonstrates that the true God has a power utterly superior to that of Caesar, the ruler of the day. The cross is thus to be seen with deep and rich paradox as the secret power of this true God, the power of self-giving love, which subverts the power of the tyrant. You see, Rome was so great at crucifying that they one time ran out of wood and they had to start nailing bodies to the side of the wall. They were so amazing at this horrible torture of their people. They took such joy in that crucifixion that they would just start to crucify slaves and rebels so that it would go for 400 miles with the Spartan Rebellion in the Roman Empire. And you couldn't walk without seeing the next person's body on that cross. And if you and I were living in that world, we would look at that sign of that crucifixion and said, say, Rome has won. But instead, as a centurion servant declares at the cross, surely this is the son of God. That type of crucifixion, resurrection power, that type of paradox, that type of kingdom upside down, totally turning everything over with Caesar, that is what shapes our story. Our belief that these teachings of Jesus, that living into the way of Jesus and following Christ changes everything, not just only now and in this world now, yes, and in the life to come. We've forgotten some of that story. We've forgotten how radical it was to believe that there was a God that suffered and died for us. And how crazy that would sound in a kingdom of Caesar, of Greco-Roman ethics. There is an um, agnostic uh, scholar from the UK named Tom Holland. He's a historian. And in September 2016, he wrote this article in the New Statesman why I was wrong about Christianity. It took me a long time to realize my morals are not Greek or Roman, but thoroughly and proudly Christian, he wrote. Now, let me just give, give me two minutes to tell you what he suggests. The longer I spent immersed in the study of classical antiquity, the more alien and unsettling I came to find it. Murderous forms of eugenics and people who trained their young to kill were nothing that I recognized as my own, nor were those of Caesar who was reported to have killed a million Gauls and enslaved a million more. It was not just the extremes of callousness that I came to find shocking. But the lack of a sense of the poor or the weak might have any intrinsic value. So as he continues to study as a historian, the Greco-Roman world, he's like thinking his whole life, I recognize this world. I'm Western. This is my world. This makes sense. But the more he started to study into it, the more he realized it was quite alien to the world that he lived in and quite alien to any of the values he shared. He continues. We preach Christ crucified, St. Paul declared, unto the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness, and he was right. Nothing could have run more counter to the most profoundly held assumption of Paul's contemporaries, Jews or Greeks or Romans. The notion that a God might have suffered torture and death on a cross was so shocking as to appear repulsive. Familiarity with the biblical narrative of the crucifixion has dulled our sense of just how completely novel a deity Christ was. In the ancient world, it was the role of gods who laid claim to ruling the universe and to uphold its order by inflicting punishment punishment, not to suffer it themselves. And this is his last portion. Today, even as belief in God fades across the West, the countries that were once collectively known as Christendom continue to bear the stamp of the two millennia old revolution that Christianity represents. It is the principal reason why, by and large, most of us who lived in post-Christian societies still take for granted that it's nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering. It is why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. And in my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. And he's agnostic. And he's saying That without the, Greco, without the Judeo-Christian ethic pushing through into our society, we don't have such things as international human rights. We don't have the things that fight for justice in this world. We don't have the things in this world that say humility is the way of leadership. Laying down one life and and laying down it for another is the way of true love. These are unique to the teachings of Jesus. Now, after this core event, this crucifixion, burial, and resurrection happens... Paul, the gospel goes west, and Paul starts to take this message, as we find in Acts, and his amazing repentance movement, movement, and starting to see Jesus as Messiah, and then he starts to raise up women among him, Priscilla and her, her partner Aquila. We have Junia. We have Phoebe, a deacon in the church. We have all the women mentioned in Romans 16. We have other women right alongside we start to see that Paul starts to reach into systems of that Roman world and say, this is not how it should be. And then he'll say such earth-shaking things like this. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. We love that verse, but we don't understand how shocking that was to a world where if you were male and Roman and free, you could do anything you wanted to anyone else. Nobody else had equality to you. No other nationality, no other ethnicity, no other gender, no other age. The male Roman who was free had the ethic at that time to just run whatever they wanted over anyone else. And the Caesars of the day ruled with that iron fist. They tortured people. They tortured dissenters. There was no ethic that pushes through. And then the gospel and the message of Jesus shows up and starts to say, that whole system that you've created, Caesar is not God. Jesus is God. He's been enthroned through the cross by suffering. And he switched it all upside down. And all of those systems and structures that you've all been leaning into, those are going to have to go away because this kingdom is different. And this brings us to our world today. That we have a calling. Jesus is very clear. If you love me, keep my commands. Not if you love me, you'll get to go to heaven. Although yes, that too hopefully, right? But that we are now called, we have a vocation, we have a job to step into this world and take the teachings of Jesus and take the movement of the early church and take those ethics of Jesus in through Paul and through the world and start to live those out here and now. And guess what? That's what the church has been doing for 2,000 years. Now, you and I can sit here and remember what I said at the very beginning. It's easy to romanticize or demonize the movement of Jesus. It's easy to look back at the church and say, here are all the places it's gone wrong. That's probably what we can do most quickly, right? Here are all the places where the hypocrisy of the church, even this week, we weep and we mourn and we see that the people who've claimed the name of Jesus are not doing as he has commanded. But we still have that calling, and we will fail at it, but we can also pursue it. So let's start to look at some of our heroes, and I'm just going to reach back a couple hundred years, guys. Charles Finney, 1792 to 1875, founded was one of the early founders of Oberlin College, a stop on the Underground Railroad. He started that college... With two other people founding it just before him, and he started college. And he said the college will only educate male and female right alongside and all races. Do so you guys? 1792 is his birth date, and he said this. He declared in a 19 in an 18 I should say 1834 sermon <laughs> that he could not recognize men as Christians if they trafficked in the bodies and blood of fellow men. He refused as early as 1833 to allow slaveholders to commune in his church. He did not. He said, I do not baptize slavery by some soft Christian name if I call it a sin and its perpetrators cannot be fit subjects for Christian communion and fellowship. That's leadership that stepped into that world that was not a Christian nation, that was taking horribly the ethics of the Greco-Roman Empire and seeing that push forward. And instead, there were Christians stepping in and saying, it's not okay because exactly of the teachings of Jesus and of Paul. Charles Finney went as soon as he would convert somebody to Christianity in one of his amazing revivals, he would say, and now you are a suffragist and an abolitionist, go fill out the card. If you follow Jesus, then you are going to fight for equal rights for women and for equal rights for the slave. We will abolish slavery. Sojourner Truth. Right along in that time, 1797 to 1883, this incredible woman, herself once a slave, set free. She said things like this. That little man in black there, he says, women can't have as much rights as men because Christ wasn't a woman. Where did your Christ come from? Where did your Christ come from? From God and a woman. Man had nothing to do with him. God will take care of the poor trampled slave, but where will the slaveholder be when eternity begins? She took that ethic of loving your enemy. And still pushed on trying to figure out how to change the hearts of the slaveholders. How to make a difference in this world. And she partnered with incredible women like Lucretia Mott. Don't any of you know who she is? She is my hero. And if her name didn't sound a little bit odd, I probably would have named my kid after her, right? I feel like I have a bad case of the Lucretias. Um, so Lucretia Mott, 1793 to 1880. This woman was on fire. A preacher. Married, her husband supported her ministry, a mother, and an ardent fighter for abolition and for suffrage. And she never stopped. You guys got to read some of her sermons. They are crazy. Like if somebody preached one of her sermons today in a church, not Spark, but like a church down the road, people would walk out. Freak out. Like She's like, you have abused the Bible. She said crazy things like, it's not Christianity, but priestcraft that has subjected women as we find her. I have no idea of submitting tamely to injustice inflicted either on me or the slave. I will oppose it with all the moral powers with which I am endowed, and I am no advocate of passivity. The laws given on Mount Sinai for the government of man and woman were equal. The precepts of Jesus make no distinction. See, it's so easy for me today to look at current expressions of modern, to use a label, Christianity in North America, and say, look how they've, Subjugated the woman. Look how they don't care about the persons of color in our midst. Look how they have marginalized the LGBTQ plus community. Look how they've done all of these things, and I will start to think, mistakenly in my mind, that that alone is my heritage. And I just want to let you know and me know today that you get to walk out of this room today, going, I am proud to be a Christian because there are some people that fought hard for the name and the reputation and the gospel and the good news of Jesus to go through in this world, and they would be ashamed if I walked out on it for all of that, the blood and the sweat and the tears that they fought for, for the equality of all people. The Grimke sisters, are you kidding me? These girls, throwing down from the south, raised in the south. As they were then moving to the north, they said to their mother, we would like our inheritance. Do you know what we'd like for our inheritance? We want all of the slaves. And then they set them all free. And as they then started to continue to fight for both suffrage and abolition, they would write things like this to the southern clergy. To my dear native land, to the beloved relatives who are still breathing her tainted air. To the ministers of Christ, from some of whom I receive the emblems of a Savior's love. Exodus twenty-one sixteen: He that stealeth the man and selleth him shall surely be put to death. This is the sin which the church is fostering in her bosom. This is the leprosy over which she is casting the mantle of charity to hide, if possible, the putrefying sores. Can ye any longer, with your eyes fixed upon the cross of Christ, plant your foot on his injured representative and sanction and sanctify this heartbreaking, this soul-destroying system? Do you know what it took for two women, two sisters, to stand and write those letters to the white clergy members in the South from their home? Can you imagine how many dinners they were not invited back to? In fact, when they showed up in the North, in New York, and started to say, We as women want to show up to the anti slavery meeting and fight for abolition, there were riots because women were not allowed to speak. And they continued to fight. And letters on the equality of sexes. they wrote this, Sarah Grimke. Oh, man, 1837, you guys. And this stuff sounds radical still today. Men and women are created equal. Female passivity and dependence are not taught by the Bible, but was invented by men as a means to keep women in subjection. It is a device in man's war against her mind, her heart, and her soul. How monstrous is the doctrine that woman is to be dependent on man. Where in all sacred scriptures is this taught? But I ask no favors for my sex. I surrender not our claim to equality. All I ask of our brethren is that they will take their feet off our necks and permit us to stand upright on the ground which God designed us to occupy. Do you know why they thought this? Because there had been a movement. A movement in America, a Christian movement also in Europe that said suffrage and abolition were central to the gospel. As Oberlin College was created, it was created to evangelize and push forth onto the West so that within two years, 900 additional anti-slavery societies were built. Within two years of Oberlin College sending people out, central to your faith and mine because of the cross because of that upside-down kingdom, because of the teachings of the Apostle Paul pushing through, they said, this is the way we're supposed to live, and it's central to the gospel. Ida B. Wells continued to take up that mantle, and she started to fight over and again against the practice of lynching in America. She spoke all over, and you know how radical she is? At that time, the people in the women's rights movement, the suffragists, they would say, you can only have one marriage. It must be to the cause of suffrage and abolition. And she got married, and they stopped talking to her. Women. Um, And so at that point then, she continued to uphold her household, to continue to keep her marriage, and then also be one of the founding members of the NAACP. Constantly going around and lecturing, also in Britain. And there's so many more to mention. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. These are people who claimed that the reason why they cared about these issues was because of Jesus. We're part of this fabric. This is part of our story. Now, are there the other stories that we could match that are appalling? Sure are. We can point to the people that claimed to be followers of Jesus, who enslaved, who continued to demean, who continues even today to argue and to try to oppress but I want to also know the stories of the people that I would be comfortable with, the people that are part of my story today. Elizabeth Fry worked for prison reform. William Wilberforce, amazing grace, abolitionist. Harriet Tubman, Catherine Booth, Salvation Army, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Sophie Scholl and Cory ten Boom and so many others, you know, when you think, when I think about what happened in Nazi Germany and the killing of six million Jews and more, I think where were the people that claimed Jesus? And many of them themselves were being killed because they had stood up. There's a place where every time we lead a tour in Israel, we always go to Yad Vashem, Which is the Holocaust Memorial Museum. And my great hope every time I go there is I walk down this place called the Garden for the Nations. And it's about righteous Gentiles who hid and saved Jews in that time. And you know what? They keep finding so many stories that they've run out of space and they have to keep planting tree after tree after tree. Don't we want to be in that garden? And there are people today doing this good work. Every year around Christmas time, Nicholas Kristof talks about him. He's like, hey, when I go out into the developing world, when I go out into the places of need, you know who I find? there are Christians. I find Christians out there who've been long there before anybody else doing the good hard work. Today, there are churches who are becoming sanctuaries for people who are in need of sanctuary. For undocumented immigrants in our community. They are stepping forth. And we have a very large, broad church experience where today we still have leaders in our church that say, and this is my favorite, my favorite thing this week, August 20th, from Marcus Haley. Is this a social justice church? To me, that's like saying, Is this a book library or a food grocery store? We're a church. And because we follow Christ, we are called, among other things, to pursue justice. Social justice became such a bad word amongst a whole bunch of churches and different meetings that we start calling it gospel justice here. Like, is that what's going to be necessary? Like, because by the very fact that I am a follower of Jesus, this is the work, this is the vocation, this is the shalom that I am called to do, that we are all called to do, that every Christ follower is called to do. <clears throat> we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And we should not forget that as we look at our Christian heritage, and even the current state that it is in today, which sometimes, oftentimes looks pretty difficult. We have a lot of work to do, don't we? But don't despair. There is a cloud of witnesses here. There are more like us than you know. And there are a cloud of witnesses that stretch 2,000 years back even more into the Jewish Hebrew Bible as well who are saying with us that we should fix our eyes on Jesus. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It will be hard. It'll be difficult. You might cause a riot. Let's hope. We have work to do, you guys. And that's our story. What's the way forward? Lean back into where you're from. Tell the stories of the cloud of witnesses of the heroes of our faith. Those who stood up then and continue to stand up now. Find the people now who can encourage you, who can hold all of us up. As we link arms together and we say, hey, we will stand together. We will not allow the gospel of Jesus to go out without the justice and the love of Jesus too. Don't lose heart. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Follow him. That's the way forward. Amen. let's pray. Jesus, we need your help. God, what a world we're in. And we've contributed to so much hurt and hatred and pain. And we have maligned your name and we have not followed in your footsteps. We have not picked up our cross. We have not considered others better than ourselves. We've disobeyed. We've not pursued justice. We've pushed people out. We've not opened our arms and welcomed people in we've grown tired. We despair. So we fix our eyes on you. Jesus, come. Be here with us. Help us, Lord. Show us the next way forward, the next right thing, the next right step. Give us all that we need to love one another, to learn from one another, to forgive one another, to, to confess with one another, and to grow again. we might start to see more of your kingdom, more of your justice, more of your love come crashing here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Okay. So some of you know that after a message every now and then I'd like to interrupt the person and ask a question. So, uh, you actually studied political science before you Mm -hmm. studied theology. So you have this political science background. like a long time ago. It was a long time. I understand. You're still very, so my question for you, and I think this is, um, something that as I watch you, this was fantastic, by the way, this is why I was so excited about this. (laughs) What is the distinction or how do to you... has go home with me later <laughs> to tell me. <laughs> that was amazing. Um, what is the distinction or how do you manage being socially engaged without becoming politically corrupt? Okay, so sure. Uh, I think that there are... I think I look back to how Spark has formed. We're formed and, and shaped by our five core values. And those five core values are values that we see throughout the entirety of our text the whole of our Bible, Genesis through Revelation, and particularly lived out in the life of Jesus in the early church. And so that's the measure, right? Is it about love, reconciliation, reputation of God, rescue, resurrection? Are we seeing somebody brought into new life here and in the world to come? Are we seeing ourselves get rescued from our own prejudices and and issues and blind spots, and then also can we be brought into trying to listen to one another and to serve one another and help and grow? I mean, I don't know. There's so much in that, but I think for me, it's about finding that larger value. So I am not aligned with any political party. I, I follow Jesus, and if some group out there starts to grab one of his values, well, that's their problem, not mine, because I'm still following Jesus. Yeah. And again, part of the reason why I want to do that is so that you all get to see and model and and know that our, our culture is one where you can ask a pastor a question and really challenge them. So, Okay, thanks everybody. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.